You're listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Well, this evening we turn again to the book of Genesis. Genesis, we are now in chapter three. First book in the Bible, the book about beginnings. We turn from the creation of all things to the most tragic moment in human history. So we will read Genesis chapter three, verses one through seven. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit, in the, of, the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you shall not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that, I was a, it, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If we turn in our Bibles, most of us have a blank page between the end of Malachi and Matthew. This blank page just says the words New Testament. And I think often we think this is the big divider in our Bible. And we see these two parts, the Old Testament and the New Testament. And I think it's understandable. There's reasons why there's a division there. But this is not the real division in our Bible. The real division in our Bible comes between Genesis 2 and Genesis 3. That blank page should go before our reading that we just read this evening. The story starts in the pristine, very good world that God had made. No sin. No corruption. It was as God had designed it. But this passage ends in a dystopian horror. It begins with all going well as designed and ends with shrapnel being thrown through the whole of creation. We know the story. We know the story well as the fall. The fall from our estate of knowledge, righteousness, and holiness in fellowship with God into an estate of sin and misery. It's the reverse of those old movies as a kid that I used to remember that would start in black and white, and then as it reached the pinnacle, it would turn to color. This begins in that full high-definition color and ends in the staticky black and white of a fallen creation. As much to say, we won't have a full theology of sin unpacked this evening, but there's so much to say about our text, and so I hope to move as quickly as I can, given the content. We are condemned in sin with Adam, unless we look in faith 
to the one who withstood Satan's temptations for his people. We are condemned in sin with Adam unless we look in faith to the one who withstood Satan's temptations for his people. I want us to look at these three major characters in this passage. First is the serpent, second, the woman, third, the man, all in relationship to God and one another before we conclude and consider how we fit in this story. So first, let's consider the serpent here. The antagonist of the scene comes in verse one, now the serpent appears one of God's creatures. In fact, he's the craftiest. Now crafty in the Hebrew doesn't have a negative connotation the way the word in English does. It's not necessarily a bad word. It's more neutral, meaning shrewd. So God's good creation, this shrewd creature comes on the scene. And we come to understand, especially as the story unfolds, but certainly as scripture unfolds, that this is a Wonderful, perfectly good creature made by God that has been co-opted by Satan for his bidding. That's what Revelation 12, 9 says happened here. Speaks of that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. It's encapsulating this entire story in that description. This is the serpent, the ancient serpent, Satan himself the deceiver of the whole world. He's come and taken possession of one of God's creatures, similar to what we see in the Gospels when we have animals or even people taken over by unclean spirits. So Satan infiltrates God's garden of Eden to wreak havoc upon God's creation. Now we don't have a background of who Satan is, how he fell, when he fell, all of these kinds of questions. From the rest of scripture, we can get a sense of some of them. But here in this passage, he just appears. He is here. Evil incarnate is on the scene. And his goal here is to inject doubt about God's word and God's character into God's image. And this is what his tactics are all all aiming towards. Injecting doubts about God's word and God's character into God's image. And he starts simply by asking questions. And it seems innocent enough on the surface. He didn't come saying, I am Satan and I want your downfall. It would be easier, maybe if he did. He came shrewdly. He came unaggressively, but nonetheless, dangerously. Notice in this passage, Satan only speaks twice. He only says two things that ought to to send shivers down our spine. How all of creation fell based on two things alone that Satan said. This was not an elongated war. This is not repeated attacks. This is two statements made by Satan. He begins the series of dominoes falling that leads to this fall here in our passage. Let's look at what he does and what he says. He comes first to the woman. Verse one, he said to the woman, he turns his attention to her. I don't think this is because she's more gullible by nature, but I think possibly for two reasons he goes to the woman. First, it's to to subvert the natural order of authority. Adam was responsible to protect his wife. Adam was also covenantally the head of the entire human race. And Adam is more vulnerable if Satan attacks him through his wife. 
So he's subverting the natural order of authority for the downfall of the human race. I think also he may be coming after the woman because he's attacking the one who was not actually present when God gave the command regarding the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you look back at chapter two, verses 16 and 17, God commanded the man. Only Adam was there when God gave these particular commands to Adam. And so Adam was to faithfully transmit those commands on to Eve and his descendants. But Satan goes to attack the one who was not there, who did not hear this from God's lips, who heard them only through her husband. So I think that may be why Satan goes to the woman, but let's look at what he says. He begins with his first statement. It's a question. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Well, the answer here is clearly no. God did not say you cannot eat of any tree in the garden. But he's intending here to plant doubt in her mind. Did God actually say? Now we're questioning God's word. We're questioning what God said. Maybe he does intend to appear uninformed. Maybe he's just simply asking Eve for clarification. But the pressure point of this question is clear. He's trying to undermine God's very word that he had given. God's word sits over us in authority. It is God who is saying it. Whatever God says is authoritative because it is from God. But Satan here is swapping that order, making God's word now subject to human authority. Did God actually say? And this is where the battle is lost both for individuals and at a corporate level with the church, undermining the authority and sufficiency of God's word. If we do not declare that God's word is authoritative, God's word is enough, the battle is lost. We must come back to God's word being authoritative, being sufficient for us. So with this first statement, he's undermining uh, undermining God's word. Let's look at the second statement, and this is an assertion. And again, we'll come back to the woman and see her response to this question. But his second statement is this in verse four. He says, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And what he's doing here is he's clearly misstating the truth. He's clearly misstating everything God had said, but he's not doing it simply just to to misstate it. He's now calling into question the very character and nature of God. In other words, Satan is telling the woman, God is deceiving you with his words. God actually doesn't want what's best for you. His law is no good. God sees you, his creature, as a threat, and he wants to keep you at bay. You can know what God knows. You can be as powerful as he is. You just have to assert yourself. Don't let God ruin all the fun and deny what is rightfully yours. Take that fruit and eat. Satan couldn't be further from the truth. Not only is this radically untrue, objectively, God did not say any of these things, but he is now opening the door to question the goodness of God the greatness of God, saying God is not who he's told you he is. You cannot believe him. He is a tyrant and a liar. 1 Peter 5 
It says, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. That is exactly what he has done in Genesis 3. He is trying to devour by undermining God's word, by questioning God's character. We know his tactics. We see his tactics here. He wants to distort God's word. He wants to undermine our trust in the goodness and the greatness of our God. So how do we resist him? I have to come back to that word. Hold fast to that word, the word that he has revealed, what he has said is true about himself. We must hold fast to that. We must know it well and believing in the God who is revealed in his word. We must know and believe that he is both good and great. So Satan has come to devour the human race. So what of the woman? Let's consider her perspective. Verse one, she's in the garden, maybe minding her own business, maybe enjoying some time with Adam. But the Satan now comes to her. This serpent comes and addresses her directly. Let's consider her responses. The first question, remember, was, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? So what's her response to that? She says in verses two and three in Genesis three, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the tree, the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. She's trying to answer his question that says, can you not eat of anything? She's trying to answer the question, but in answering this question, she makes some significant distortions of God's word. She does it in three ways. First, she distorts God's word by subtracting from it. Subtracting from it. First, her her response is, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. Well, there, she's not technically quoting God, but she's subtracting from what God had had told to Adam. Because if you look back to chapter two, verse 16, God says, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. He goes on to make one exception. And Eve fails to capture this, fails to capture God's goodness. God said, you can eat of every tree. And she just simply says, we can eat of the trees of the garden. She's failing to capture God's goodness, the bounty of God's provision for them. Every tree is yours. She refuses to go there. So she subtracts from God's word. And second, she subtracts when we look at the the last phrase, lest you die. Again, if we go back to chapter two, verse 17, God's word, and now she's quoting God here and she fails to quote all this, where God tells Adam, in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. There's two rhetorical elements of God's original quotation that come through to emphasize the certainty of God's punishment for sin. It says, in the day that you eat of it, Eve fails to to reiterate God's statement there. In the day you eat of it, now that's not necessarily a temporal statement, strictly speaking, but it's a statement about how sure it is that there will be a punishment. If you do this, it is absolutely certain that this result will happen. Death will happen. Eve does not repeat the certainty here, but she also fails to repeat this word that comes in the English as surely. She just says, lest you die. But God says, no, you shall surely die. And this is a Hebrew idiom based on the verb to die. It's it's really dying, you will die. It's a repetition of that verse to show the importance and the emphasis, the reality of this that will take place. 
So really Eve, by subtraction, is reducing the statements of God down to the simple verb, lest you die. The certainty is gone. The emphasis is gone. She's subtracting from God's word. She also distorts God's word with adding, injecting ambiguity into it. She says, again, back to uh, Genesis 3, verse verse 2 and 3, God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. So that's her statement of what God said. You shall not eat of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. But she's injecting ambiguity here because that's not exactly what God said. If you go back to chapter 2, verse 9, we see that the tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Grammatically, the tree that's in the midst of the garden is a tree of life. Now, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, it's not grammatically certain that it was in the middle of the garden. Maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. From Eve's statement, seems like it likely was in the midst of the garden. But the tree in the midst of the garden, the tree with the prominence, the tree with the central location, God said, this is the tree of life. This is what you hold up as as important, as showing you my promise, as holding forth life abundant to you. But now Eve is being ambiguous, really subverting the importance of that tree being in the midst of the garden, she identifies the tree of the knowledge of good and evil as this tree that's in the midst of the garden. We don't know what she's speaking of when she says that tree in the midst of the garden. She's referring to the tree of life or the tree, the knowledge of good and evil. Eve is ambiguous here in how she understands and articulates God's word. She's not being clear. She's not being crystal clear. She's not being precise in her understanding and in her articulation of it. So she's distorting God's word. And then finally, she distorts God's word by adding to it. And this comes to us most clearly. This is uh, verse three, where God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Nowhere did God prohibit touching. Eve is injecting this into God's word. It's a clear misstatement. It's going above and beyond. Maybe we can forgive some ambiguity. Maybe some subtraction wasn't intentional, but she's clearly intentionally adding to God's word here, making God more severe and harsh than he really is. Her response to the temptation is to distort God's word. She does not clearly state God's word. I think this is important to compare Eve here with Jesus. As we read earlier from Matthew, how did Christ respond to Satan's temptations when he came to him in the wilderness with God's word to tempt him? This is a showdown between covenant representative and the devil And there Satan takes God's word out of context. But what Jesus could do over and over and over all three times was by using God's word itself, he can counter the errors. He rightly understood God's word, strongly stood upon it in thwarting the plans of the devil and not allowing his temptations to stand and rejecting them and fleeing from them. While Satan takes God's words out of context, while Satan tries to undermine God's word and God's character, Jesus says, absolutely not. We stand strongly upon God's word and nothing else. So this was Eve's first response of allowing the distortion of God's word 
And let's look at her response to the second statement. The second statement. Remember, this was Satan injecting what is false into the equation and saying, in fact, no, God is lying to you. You can't believe his character. And Eve's response in verse six was that she bought it all, hook, line, and sinker. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. This fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil it, now, because of Satan's lies, he, is now, he has now warped her heart. She has allowed him to warp her heart. Because now this tree appeals to her lust of the flesh. She said it was good for food, is what she thought. But Christ refused to desire the temptation of bread. He refused the lust of the flesh. But then second, for Eve, it appealed to her lust of the eyes. It says it was a delight to her eyes said, oh, this is so beautiful, I must have it. But Christ refused to desire the temptation of all the riches of the world as they were placed before him. And then for Eve, this also appealed to her lust of pride. It was desirable to make one wise. I can know what God knows. How wonderful would that make me? Christ refused to desire the spectacle of him calling the angels to his rescue from falling. He refused to desire that. He refused the lust of pride. So we see here very clearly the woman compared to Christ. And this is where we see 1 John maybe referring to this incident. Incident, 1 John 2, verse 16, where the apostle writes, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. These three temptations, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the lust of the pride of life. So what does the woman do? She ate. She ate those two little words. That external temptation has led to internal sinful desire, which led to an external sinful act. We see the progress of sin. Going from temptation to sin and seed for in the heart to sin fully fleshed out in actions. So the woman has eaten and then she offers it to her husband. So let's consider the man Really all of what we said and even more can be said about the man. All that is true of, of the woman is true of the man here. But we can go further and say that he had an even greater duty than his wife to protect her. Additionally, he was the covenant representative of the human race. And he was given the directive to have dominion over the creation. To fill the earth with the glory of God's garden. And that included, according to Genesis 1.28, Adam's task of subduing. Subduing anything contrary to God's design, like the serpents. I'm convinced that as soon as Satan began speaking and misquoting God's word, it was now Adam's charge as the priest of the garden temple, as the king of the creation, as the prophet who had the words of God to proclaim to, the, to God's creation, to cast that serpent out of the garden. 
He should have exiled him. He should have crushed his head. He should have taken the shovel and chopped it in two. He should have taken the shotgun and taken it straight to its head. That serpent should have died at that moment. That was Adam's charge. That's what he should have done. He was to have dominion over that serpent. He refused. That serpent should have had no welcome in the land of righteousness. He should have been barred from entry and ultimately destroyed. And the further that Adam let things go between his wife and Satan, the more he was derelict in his duty. And of course, this culminated with Adam taking the fruit from his wife and eating it. The head of the human race has fallen. This, at this tree of judgment, the tree of that, that crisis where he was to decide between good and evil, where he was to know experientially good or evil, he failed the test. Where he was to stand for the truth of God's word, to defend the holiness and character of God, he failed. Adam committed here treason of the highest order. He preferred to serve Satan as his God and ultimately himself rather than Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God. And this is what we call sin. This has plunged the whole human race into death. On the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. And we're going to unpack that as Genesis continues to unpack that through the the coming weeks. God, God's promise was true. And death came upon the entire human race at that moment. I recently, just, just in the last couple of days, listened to one of my favorite podcasts. And this episode was called Cheating Death. And really what the, the, the podcast was, was exploring, it was asking the question, is it possible to avoid death? And they talked to all kinds of scientists and so-called experts in whatever field they're in, asking, in what way can we, can we, can we avoid death? Is technology on the verge of this? What's our, our future? Is there a way that in the future we can, we can learn how to avoid death? And unequivocally, resoundingly, every single person that was spoken to said, no. Death is an absolute certainty There's no way to avoid it. No technological advancements, nothing. Nothing even in light of transhumanism and medical and scientific advances. Nothing will be able to thwart death. Death is an absolute certainty for everyone. If it ended there, that would be true. But what was absolutely stunning to me was they went one step further and asked the question, why do we have to die? Why must we die? Why is there death in the world? Going back through all those experts, all the people that were interviewed, nobody could give a single answer. Why? I don't know. Why? That's just how things are. Why? Nobody could answer the why. And it ended with laughter, literally laughter, about how absurd it was to even ask such a question. I wanted to scream through my headphones and say, I know why. We've rejected the creator of heaven and earth. That's why there's death. This is not how it should be. 
And that everybody feels that to their core. That's why they ask the question, is it possible to not die? We feel death is not right. This is not how our creation was made to be. But it is absolutely certain as the result of sin. Verse seven, the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. They knew their new estate of sin. Their eyes were opened. They knew it had effects on their relationship. They knew that they were naked now. And their nakedness and intimacy was now a fearful thing. There was something of a separation that now passed between Adam and his wife. Now their relationship is marred with sin. So now intimacy was tainted with this new reality that things are not how they should be. So they knew they needed to do something about their new estate of sin. So they sewed fig leaves together, made themselves loincloths. They realized, yes, nakedness now in, in, in a fallen reality, nakedness ought to be hidden. But what folly it was to think that a mere fig leaf could repair the damage done. It's going to take far more than a fig leaf for the human race to be restored to a right relationship with one another, much less God himself. So what does this mean for us? Where are we located in this story? The serpent, the woman, the man, and then what does that mean for you and me? What was this story designed to communicate to the Israelites who were wandering in the desert as Moses wrote this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? What did they gain from this? What do we gain from this? First, I think this is not primarily a how to fight temptation passage. Although we do see what the slide into sin looks like. This is a warning against the dangers of sin. It's, uh, this uncovers the subversiveness of Satan's schemes. Yes, it shows us these things. It calls us, alerts us, calls us to be on guard. But that's not what this passage is about at the most basic level. It tells us ultimately one thing. Two things wrapped up in one. It tells us that by nature, our federal representative has failed us. And the result of that is we are dead in our sin, in his sin and our sin, in his sin, in the garden and our subsequent sin. By nature, first, our federal representative has failed us. Adam represents all of us in this garden, not metaphorically, not figuratively, but actually and covenantally. He is the covenant head of everyone born after him. We see this all throughout scripture. All the genealogies go back to Adam, not just as our father, but as our covenant head. Genesis 5, Chronicles, Luke, all these places, the the genealogies show us Adam is our federal head, our representative. And by his sin, we are now guilty. And also, because of that, we are now dead in our sin. And we only contribute to the problem of sin in this world. Romans 5 says, sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. The state of the world is that we are condemned under the covenant of works. Our covenant head has failed and we are covered in his failure. So I'll raise the question again. Where are we in this story? We ultimately share the guilt of the man and the woman. 
We read ourselves in the story as those guilty of this sin. We read the story and say, woe is me. I am condemned. And if we zoom out and look at the larger arc of the history of God's working in this world and redemption, we can ask another further question. And the question is this, who do you want to be your representative? Because ultimately, there are two federal representatives. There are two covenant heads. And we are all under one or the other. And the question is, which one do you want to fall under? You're going to fall under our first father, Adam. We're going to fall under the last Adam. The one who came and who withstood the temptations of the serpent. The one who came and fulfilled all righteousness. The one who came not to serve, but not to be served, but to serve. To give his life as a ransom for many. The one who came full of grace and truth. The one who laid down his life for his sheep. The one who offers salvation as a free gift. When anyone comes to him in faith and trusts in him. See, the reality is when you look to Christ, you get his righteousness. Otherwise, you are in Adam. You, what Adam did, you get. Unless you look to Christ. Unless you trust in him. Unless you see him as God and Lord. Say, I need you. And then you receive his perfect obedience. You receive the free gift from God. Romans 5, I could go down and read this whole thing and add a running commentary on Romans 5. I won't do that for the sake of time. But Romans 5 shows us this exact parallel between Adam and Jesus. Which one represents you before God? So you are faced with a choice. Do you love your sin and enjoy the representation of your first father, Adam? Do you, then do nothing. Or do you hate your sin? Do you hate what it does to you and how you are alienated from God, how it harms others? Do you desire the loving embrace of God and see that the better representative has accomplished everything needed? He has spurned the temptations of Satan. He's welcomed us into eternal life with a free gift. Which one will it be? By nature, you are in Adam. But thanks be to God for Jesus Christ, his blood and his righteousness, where he stands ready to receive any who come to him by faith. And what a joy it is to know that death will not have the final say for those in Christ. Death is not the end. Death is certain, but death will not have the last word over those who are in Christ. Jesus Christ has risen from the dead and so will all those who are found in him to the glory of God, our Father. Let us look to him in prayer. Our great God, these are sober words that we have heard. That our entire race is enslaved to sin and is indeed dead in sin. We pray that you would have mercy upon us, those who hear these things, that we would cast ourselves upon Jesus Christ, and we would look to him for life everlasting with you. Oh Lord, may your spirit be at work as we ponder and consider these things this week. May you be glorified 
in our lives. In Christ's name, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.